the unregenerate, unsaved mind thinks the way the world thinks. And we have some preachers who have built some of the largest churches in the country who are appealing on the basis of prosperity and health and good feelings who will say nothing about sin. What are they doing? They are appealing to the natural mind. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is senior pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in a study of the book of Romans, and today we move into chapter 6, where we begin to see how those who have trusted in the sufficiency of Christ to save them from an eternity in hell now are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, who begins to affect their day-to-day behavior. Our study is entitled, Freedom to Sin? Would you take your Bibles, please, this morning and turn to the book of Romans, chapter 6. Romans 6. Romans 6 deals with the subject of slavery, not by chain, but in the heart. And we've seen that the book of Romans divides into three principal sections. The first section is a picture of God's righteousness revealed. That's chapters 1 through 8, where we are still find ourselves. Chapters 9 through 11 is God's righteousness vindicated. We see how God's righteousness is shown to be true and faithful when he keeps his promises to the nation of Israel, which is the subject of that section. The third section is an example of God's righteousness applied, chapters 12 through 16, where he tells us and shows us how to flesh it out in daily life. Or to say it differently, the first section is doctrinal, the second is national, and the third is applicational. We saw that each section in turn divides into three sections. And so the doctrinal section, chapters 1 through 8, deals with three principal doctrines. The doctrine of condemnation, the doctrine of justification, and the doctrine of sanctification. Today we turn a corner. We're moving from the doctrine of justification to the doctrine of sanctification. Justification speaks of a declaration of righteousness. It speaks of our position. It speaks of our standing before God where God deems you as holy, as righteous in his sight. Sanctification is not the declaration of righteousness. It's the shaping of righteousness. It's God making you into the image of his precious son. Justification deals with the guilt of sin, with the penalty of sin, whereby God can righteously, as a righteous God, declare the unrighteous righteous in his sight where God can be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. But after you are justified, the process of sanctification begins. And sanctification deals with the pollution of sin. Justification is a declaration of righteousness. Sanctification is where God makes us righteousness. One deals with our standing, the other deals with our state. Now, the first time the word sanctification appears is here in the sixth chapter, twice over, in verses 19 and 22. In fact, that's true in every English translation with the exception of the King James, which translated it from the Geneva Bible, its predecessor. And in the Geneva Bible in the Old English, instead of literally just translating the word, they interpret it. But rightly so, they render it holiness. So what we're talking about here is that process where God makes you holy. God has deemed you holy. He's declared every child of God a saint, a holy one. But now he wants to make you holy. He wants to shape you into the image of God's Son. 
that we studied very carefully in Romans chapter 4 and verse 8, God's statement when he says, blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. If there is one word that describes the nature of God, it's found in the trisagion. The trisagion is found, of course, in Isaiah 6, requoted again in Revelation 4. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. God is so holy, he could not overlook one half of one little sin that you committed. That's why James chapter 2 and verse 10 says, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he's been guilty of all the law. If you were just to break one half of one commandment, it's like you broke every commandment. God is so holy, he cannot allow sin into his holy presence. But understand, there's a difference between the declaration of righteousness, the declaration of holiness, and the experience of holiness that God wants to form into our life. One happens at a point in time, instantaneously. Now, not everyone can look back and say, it's at this moment I crossed the line, but it happened in a moment. Whereas sanctification is a process. It takes place over the course of a person's life. Dealing with the plan of salvation deals with the milk of the word. It is so simple in one respect, Jesus taught even a child can understand and embrace it. But dealing with the plan of sanctification deals with the meat of the word. And many Christians are unwilling to apply their thought in their minds to it so that they can really be changed. And so chapter 6 through 8 is very challenging, but it's very meaty. And that's why I told you, if at all possible, I don't want you to miss a single sermon. Because every message, every verse builds upon the next. And again, it is really impossible to separate sanctification from justification. You cannot grow spiritually unless you've been born spiritually. I was recently dialoguing with a man, and he said, well, you know, I've been meeting with my pastor, but I've been kind of disappointed because he's been trying to mentor me to help me get rid of some of these bad habits. So he said, I thought I would come and try your church. And I said, well, let me ask you a question. I said, where, where do you go to church? And he told me, and I thought, oh, this will be interesting. Because I knew his pastor. His pastor has told me straight to my face that he does not believe the Bible to be the infallible, inerrant, authoritative Word of God. I said, let me ask you a question. On a scale of 0 to 100, 0 I have no idea, 100 I have no doubt. How sure are you if you died in the next 10 seconds that you'd go to heaven? He said 50%. See, that was the problem. And by the way, if you're not 100% sure or if you have a false assurance, a lot of people think they're going. You're going to find out they're not. But God wants you to have a true assurance. You can have a true assurance. But if you have no assurance today and Jesus were to come back or you were to die, if you've read the Bible at all, you know you won't go. Because you've not yet rested and trusted in the justification, the gift of grace that God gives to those who believe. And so I explained to him, I said, listen, if I have a toaster and I put an English muffin in and I move the dial down and work the light and dark and up and down, I'm trying to make it brown, but it does nothing. It will do nothing unless it's plugged into the wall. And until you've been plugged into the wall of justification, until you've had a second birth, until in Jesus' words you've been born again, you'll never be able to grow. It is impossible and so we studied in great detail the doctrine of justification, 
that salvation is not a reward to the righteous. It is a gift to the guilty, to people who come admitting there's nothing they can do and they trust in Jesus, in Jesus alone. Now we turn a corner. We're talking about that process by which God makes us and shapes us into the image of his son. Now, when you look at the sixth chapter, it divides into two major portions, and each portion is introduced with a question. In verses 1 through 14, he asks the question, what shall we say then? And then when you come to verse 15 through 23, he asks the second question, what then? Now, we'll be here at least four weeks, maybe longer, but I want to begin by reading the first 14 verses. I think we'll only get through the first two today, but let's read the first 14 so we have a sense of where this chapter is headed. Romans 6, beginning in verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin." Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again, death no longer is master over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you should obey its loss. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. On New Year's Day, 1863, our 16th president signed the Emancipation Proclamation. Lincoln had worked on this document for several days because of his deep conviction and opposition against slavery. Our country was not 100 years old, but he knew that slavery would ultimately ruin and destroy our nation, that it was a wicked sin that would remove the blessing of God. And so, as he took the Emancipation Proclamation with many surrounding him, as he went to sign, he lifted his pen. And he laid it down and they said, Mr. President, what's the problem? He said, if there's anything I will ever be remembered for, it will be for this act. And if my hand trembles when I sign it, they will say he hesitated. So he took a deep breath and with a sense of boldness, he signed it. And a few days later, it was ratified by our Congress. And yet somehow it seemed that though the Emancipation Proclamation had been given by our president, that our country didn't understand it. Some slaves didn't know about it, while other slaves didn't believe it, and so they continued in subjection to their masters. But some learned of the proclamation, they believed the proclamation, and in faith they picked up their items and they left. 
The freed slaves, by faith, took it on the authority of the proclamation that they were free, even though there were no direct evidences that they really were. And the same is true of the freedom that God wants to offer you this morning in Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus not only dealt with the penalty of sin, that's justification, but he also has dealt with the power of sin, that's sanctification. And the enemy does not want you to believe this. Most of you here this morning have crossed that line into justification. Some of you have not. Some of you, if Christ were to come today, you would be lost. And I hope maybe before the service is over, you will make a decision. But most of you have made that decision. And the devil knows there's nothing he can do to undo that decision. That the Bible affirms when we are saved, we are saved forever. That there is an eternal transaction that takes place. That the one who began the good work will indeed complete it. And so the next best thing that Satan can do is to keep you from growing. And so while you may know the plan of salvation, he does not want you to understand the plan of sanctification. And with his lies, with his temptations, with his deception, he will try to keep you from taking by faith the promises that God has made to you. It's not the president of the United States who has declared us free. It is the God of the universe who has declared us free. And it's not backed by the power of the U.S. government. It's backed by the authority of an omnipotent God. And so Paul wants us to understand that there is something that we must know. There is something that we must understand in this chapter. Now, many Christians realize in terms of their justification that they have been emancipated, but not in terms of their sanctification. If you remember from Romans 1.18, after the introduction through 3.20, he dealt with our condemnation. He knew he had to get us lost before he could get us saved. But then in 3.21 and following, he deals with our justification. And if you remember in 3.23, most of you have it memorized, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then he says, being justified as a gift. The original Greek, when we studied it, reads, being justified without a cause. The King James and the predecessor to the New American Standard, the American Standard 1901, says being justified freely. It's the same word that Jesus used in John 15 when he said, they hated me without a cause. That is, people in my day hate me, but they have no cause, no reason to hate me. And so we could read the verse, being justified without a cause. We didn't do anything for God to say, oh, I need to redeem that fellow. No, it was God's grace, his undeserved, unmerited favor that emancipated us. And so from the side of man, how much did it cost us in order to be justified? Absolutely nothing. He justified fr us freely as a gift without a cause. And like any true gift, it is not earned or merited. It is given freely. There's no cause in us that moves God to save us. God reached down where we were in the cesspool of sin. And he said that even though there's not a blessed thing in you that moves me, I want you. It was not Adam who was moving towards God when he rebelled. 
It was Adam moving away from God, and God came after Adam. It was something in God and not in ourselves. You say, is that a good thing or a bad thing? It's a fantastic thing. Because when you understand that there is nothing in you, that the, then there is nothing that you can do to change it. God didn't say, well, because A, B, C, and D were in place, then I reached him and saved him. Nothing was in place. There was none righteous, no, not one. And yet God still initiated and moved to rescue us and to save us. When you understand that your acceptance is unconditional, it's liberating. And so all the way through this section, he's been describing it. And if you remember, here at the end of chapter 5, don't let the chapter and verse divisions throw you off. They're there to help us find our way around the Bible, but they can be distracting at times because we miss the flow of thought. There's no break in the argument here. At the end of 5, if you look at verse 20, as he concludes the first half of our Emancipation Proclamation, he said, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. I love that. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Now, some of your translations say where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Some of your translations say where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. But there are two distinct words used. And so the New American Standard so precisely captures it. Where sin increased, grace abounded. And we saw that the word abounded had a prefix on it, hyper. He's talking about a hyper increase. Some of you have hyperactive children and they're stuck in fifth gear all day until they fall asleep. But he's talking about hyper-grace where sin piled up, grace piled up all the more. We're formerly in Adam, the author of death and sin. Now we're in Christ, the author of salvation and life. And so when Paul makes this statement where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, it would raise some eyebrows. So I want you to notice first the reaction. If you're taking notes there in your outline, first the reaction. It's about this time some of the critics would say, okay, Paul, if this is the way it is with the grace of God, if God's grace operates in this way, if where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more, then your doctrine of free salvation encourages lawlessness and sin. And so in anticipation of what some of his critics would think, he asks the question, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? Now, Paul's critics have already slandered him. Hold your finger here. Go back to chapter 3, just a few pages to where you are. And look in chapter 3. If you remember, um, Paul is uh, using a literary method called diatribe. We saw that that was a common philosophical method of argument that was used in the first century, largely by pagans. Well, Paul uses it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to reason spiritual truth. And diatribe is basically where you have an imaginary dialogue with the students or the critics, first positing their position and then answering it. And so if you remember in Romans 3, 1 through 8, he dealt with four basic objections that his opponents would have to his teaching on salvation. 
And the Lord raised a number of these objections in his public ministry. You can read about them in the Gospels. Paul would have raised them himself when he opposed the church before his conversion. And as a Jew who went to the Jew first and then to the Greek, he would have heard them habitually in the synagogues where he went to try to win his Jewish brethren to faith. And they come up with some really pretty warped way of thinking. And that's not surprising because before you're saved, the natural mind does not understand the things of the Spirit of God. The unregenerate, unsaved mind thinks the way the world thinks. And we have some preachers who have built some of the largest churches in the country who are appealing on the basis of uh, prosperity and health and good feelings who will say nothing about sin. What are they doing? They are appealing to the natural mind. So Joe Olstein will not speak about sin. Why? Because he's a false prophet. But people in our day are so blind to basic theology, they don't even see it. So Paul had his critics, men and women who did not have the mind of Christ. And if you look at verse 8 of chapter 3, he dealt with his fourth objection. And why not say, as we slanderously report, uh, slanderously reported, and as some claim we say, let us do evil that good may come. You see what the good critics were saying? They were saying, if through my falsehood and if through my unfaithfulness, God's truth shines all the more, then how can God possibly judge me for sinning? And at this point, Paul doesn't really answer his critics. All he says is, their condemnation is just. So this kind of reasoning is the same kind of reasoning that is prevalent here in the 21st century. There are people who will say, oh, you evangelical Christians. You teach once you're saved, you're saved forever. That once you're saved, there's nothing you can do to sever this wonderful salvation. You are encouraging people just to get saved so they can go out and live like the devil. It's not unusual if you preach the gospel of grace to be slandered like the apostle Paul was slandered. People in Paul's day were saying, Paul, you teach, let's sin all the more that God's grace might be seen all the more. And Paul says, that's ridiculous. The righteousness of God is never displayed in sin. And so he just simply says here, their condemnation is just. Doesn't answer them. Now he's going to begin to answer them back here in chapter 6. He's going to address their charge head on. And by the time he's done, they will not have a leg to stand on. Now let me just say what, what they did with Paul and what they do with pastors, they'll do with you if you will faithfully share the gospel. The problem today is that most Christians are not sharing their faith. The problem today is that most Christians uh, are living subnormal lives. It's not normal not to share your faith. The new first century church knew nothing about only certain people sharing their faith. Every Christian had owned the Great Commission. They saw it as theirs, and they went gossiping the gospel wherever they went. It is subnormal not to share your faith. But if you become normal and you start sharing your faith, you'll be viewed as abnormal. But if you become normal and start gossiping the gospel and you consistently, faithfully share the plan of salvation, there are going to be some people who will slander you. That's the way it happens. And so there are people today who will reason, oh yes, Pastor Carl, I've heard about you. 
I've heard how you say there's nothing you can do to earn heaven, that it is simply the free gift of God. You are encouraging people to get saved and then to go out and sin all they want to. And they'll say, if I believed what you teach, I'd sin all I want to. And I tell them, well, I sin all I want to, and I don't want to. Because I have a new want to on the inside. When you have an encounter with the grace of God, things begin to change. And so Paul asks here, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? Now again, remember these chapter and verse divisions are artificial. He's just said where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. A young man met with his pastor in his early 20s. And he called him up one evening and he said, Pastor, I need to speak with you. Can we have breakfast? So the next morning he met. And he said, I had a moral failure in my life. I was on a business trip and I committed adultery. What do you say, Pastor? The pastor thought about this young man. He thought about the children that this young man had. And he said, well, before I respond, I want to ask you some questions. Would you pray and ask God to forgive you, understanding that true repentance involves a change of attitude and action? Would you be willing to go to that woman, woman to say, I will never see you again. The relationship is forever broken off. And would you be willing to go to your wife who has three children and is pregnant with the fourth and ask her to forgive you? And would you be willing to have a HIV test to see if you have any kind of sexually transmitted disease or the like in order to protect and guard your wife? When the pastor was finished, the young man said, Pastor, I didn't come here to hear you ask me all these questions. I came here today to find some grace. He would be what we would call an antinomian. Now, if you told that young man he was antinomian, he'd probably say, what's that? But that's a term that you should know that has been well used since the time of the Protestant Reformation where the reformers were accused of being antinomian. Anti, here on the screen, if you bring it up, is a Greek word that means against. Nomos is the Greek word for law, literally against the law. Antinomianism, meaning against the law, is the belief in theological terms where you say, because I am saved, I can live however I want to live. And that's what Paul is dealing with here in verse 1. And evangelicals are often accused of being antinomian. Since you're saved by grace, that it encourages sin. But that's not true. That's not true of real conversion. Because real conversion brings about a genuine change. For a copy of today's study from Romans 6, verses 1 and 2, entitled, Freedom to Sin?, why not download our Search the Scriptures app for Apple and Android devices? They are free and available through your respective app stores. Of course, you can always listen online at searchthescriptures.org. And if you would like a CD or DVD copy, feel free to call 877-787-7478 and request program ROM26. Freedom to Sin? 
Search the Scriptures is made possible through the prayers and financial support of listeners like you. We don't charge for any of our online resources, but we do pay radio stations around the country, and we have storage and support fees associated with our worldwide presence on the web. Won't you consider becoming a Search the Scriptures Foundation partner? Foundation partners come alongside Search the Scriptures on a regular basis and help sustain this ministry with a gift of at least $25 a month. If you'd like more information on being a Foundation partner or on making a one-time gift, call us at 877-787-7478 or check out the Search the Scriptures apps and our website, searchthescripture.org. Tomorrow, Dr. Brogy's wife, Audrey, is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. And when we return Monday, we'll continue our message, Freedom to Sin, and Search the Scriptures.